Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the wonderful and weird parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host as always, Gareth, and joining me as always are my two co-hosts. Aaron, say hi. Welcome, Cupboard Dwellers. Good, good. And uh, Drew, say hi. Uh, oh, hello. You okay? <laughs> yeah. You're coming live from the uh, the cupboard in a van today. Yeah, I am coming live from the van. Very good. We're outside your house. <laughs> I'll look out the window. <laughs> so, no, not your house. Your oh, house. You know. Oh, a listener's house. Oh, yeah, you house. know. <laughs> So if you see a strange looking van and see someone recording a podcast, it's it's true. It's me. <laughs> anyway, uh, this week we're looking at a rather underrated animal. Um, we're also going to be taking a look uh, at some of the new information about the new Jurassic World film. And I will almost Blech. certainly be pulling that apart. But that's just my own Blech. disagreement. Uh, but, but apart from that. We will uh, we will get on to the news where we've got uh, some well some good environmental news for a change. So let's get into the news. Yay! It's the news. Right. Well, it's time once again for us to do the news, and this week we've got two. Uh, good bits of environmental news, which is a rarity. And it's also apparently a rarity for me being able to say this because this is the third time I've tried to do this bit. So starting us off with some more really, really local news uh, is Drew. Yeah, so I'm bringing a very local article to the table this week. Uh, it won't make international news. It won't even make national news. But it is good news for our local area, our small little local area. And I wanted to bring attention to it. Um, so this is a short article about a housing development that was planned in a small residential area uh, called Yelland Key in North Devon. Um, and it's been refused thanks to the dedication and passion of a number of local campaigners. The plans would have allowed a development of 250 new homes and apartments, retail space, cafes, restaurants, public halls, and a community centre building. And I'd just like to point out that these 250 homes would sell for an average of 400 grand. So hardly affordable for local people um, and would have attracted wealthy second home buyers or landowners who would probably rent them out for an extortionate fee. It's probably, um, worth, it's probably worth mentioning that North Devon is very much a uh, an area where people seem to turn up from London, Birmingham, yep. Manchester for their holidays yep. and then disappear in the winter. And the then disappear in the winter, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Migra migratory, which, <laughs> which actually we've, we've, we've got a question on later. Oh, good. Um, Hashtag staycation. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, uh, there were more than 800 objections to the proposals with just two letters of support. But planners had recommended that the scheme be approved by the council. Uh, it's also important to mention, especially with the theme of this podcast, because people may well be asking, I mean, why is this idiot talking about a random housing development? that the site for these plans is wildlife habitat and it's quite important wildlife habitat as well. Um, it's adjacent to an SSSI, which is a site of specific scientific, uh, scientific interest. 
and uh, it's within the North Devon area of natural beauty and AONOB, uh, A-O-N-B. And nature reserves managed by the RSPB, Devon Wildlife Trust and the Gaia Trust are basically adjacent to this area too. So the decision went to the North Devon Council's planning committee on Wednesday the 9th of June and they voted 11 to, uh, 11 to 2 to turn down the application on the grounds that it would not help meet that local housing needs because the houses are too expensive and the, uh, the benefits would not outweigh the harm to the coastal and estuary landscape. Hmm. So the director of the Devon CPRE, which is the Campaign to Protect Rural England, said, this is an outstanding result to preserve a significant part of the area's precious landscape from development. As so many have pointed out, including 1,000 local objectors, just because a beauty spot once had a power station briefly imposed on it, which is what it is at the moment, it's a brownfield site, it doesn't mean you have to build another great concrete mass on it 40 years later. Absolutely. The overarching point, though, which clearly drove many councillors to oppose the scheme, is that it represented a huge disruption to the landscape, wildlife and uh, ecology of this part of the river estuary, whilst doing nothing at all to meet local needs. Uh, she finished by saying the proposed plans, which include, uh, included high-priced housing, was an economic insult to environmental injury. Uh, and I quite, I really like that. That's good. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, the article finished by saying that the developer has yet to comment. Um, and he, uh, or at least one of the landowners, who has a big stake in this, uh, did make his own statement by throwing down concrete blocks along the road leading up to the site, uh, which meant people couldn't park there to visit the local cafe nearby or go to the nature reserves themselves. So uh, he, uh, I think Aaron said he threw his toys out of the pram. Yes, his name is Dick Huxtable, by the way. Uh, his first one. name perfectly reflecting his character. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's a nice local story. Uh, like I say, it isn't national news by any stretch. But the UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world. And it mm. is grubby, greedy little bellends like Dick Huxtable that are the cause of that. So it this is a victory for the environment. Sorry, Garakon. No, it's, it's really good to see, especially because the the Tor and the Torridge, the two rivers that flow into the, that estuary area, um, yep. are both bordered by so much, well, unspoilt habitat, but unfortunately mm -hmm. is being encroached on more and more. We, we've all seen the, uh, the sort of developments that were done in Barnstable, um, yeah. where they built onto a floodplain and built loads of new houses. So yep. I can't wait for uh for when that all goes wrong um for the for people to complain about that and you'll be uh walking around with your feet you know in in mud but uh -huh. yet again they were all uh, all of those houses were not all affordable some of them were i think a very small percentage of them were and they were able to get away with it because they make a very small percentage of that that new estate affordable as they call it air quotes massively uh -huh. The rest of it are all jacked up prices for second homeowners who want to be on the edge of uh, a town. Yeah, yeah. Well, Affordable for the few locals that do that can afford that kind of thing. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, th uh, this is really good news. Uh, it's not over yet, obviously, because they will appeal the decision. So uh, the fight isn't quite over, but um, it's a it's a very very positive first step. Um, and is it going to cost sorry, the local two million pounds in? appeals uh, the the appeal itself is going to yes. cost the local council two million pounds yep. to a council that has not that much money all the time you know that's that's an incredibly selfish thing so that some rich owner can uh, so can make some more money by costing the taxpayer more money 
to cost the taxpayer more money mm. to benefit yep. precisely two or three people. Uh, yeah. Essentially, because because they know that it, 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 it's it's almost press ganging them into getting this development greenlit. But mm-hmm. if I remember correctly from what I saw, they he, even though he threatened that as a way of getting his way, they turned him down. Yeah, yeah. So that, that is correct. Yeah, that good. Shows, shows real balls and real guts to uh, to basically say, no, thank you. We, we you know, you can try and scare us, but it's not going to work. Yeah. So everyone who, who appealed this uh, or went against this, I, I think, deserves a round of applause really they're mm-hmm. really really dedicated group of people and they stood up for those who don't have a voice of course which is our local landscape and uh, our wildlife and plant life mm. so hooray yeah good news well we move on from uh, from a very small area of, of britain to a actually quite sizable chunk of north america for my article this week uh, which is the fact that the keystone xl pipeline uh, has been halted by Biden by blocking its planning permission, which uh, is, well, is equally fantastic news because it's a pipeline that has caused nothing but problems. Like with any of these pipelines, they, they do more damage than good. And it's yet again, it's one or two people getting super rich whilst the majority have to suffer. Um, so the Keystone XL pipeline uh, development has been halted and all construction on the project months after its permit was revo- uh, revoked by President Biden uh, and his administration. The pipeline was set to carry uh, oil um, 1,200 miles um, from the Canadian province of Alberta all the way down to Nebraska. Uh, And environmentalists and Native American groups have fought against the project uh, for more than a decade to stop this from happening. This is where I lose a bit of faith in this this particular good news, because President Trump revived the pipeline in 2017, two years after it had been had been rejected by President mm-hmm. Barack Obama. So are we just seeing a no, it's it's not going ahead. Yes, it's going ahead. No, it's not going ahead. Yes, it's going. Basically, every time we end up with a Republican president in the White House, are we going to see all of this stuff being stuck back on the books and it's going to happen all over again? Uh, and every time there's a Democrat in power, are we going to see them cancel it? So um, it's where I oh. lose a little bit of faith in it. But Here's hoping that by shutting it down now, that might be the end of it, the death of it, um, because it's done a huge amount of of harm. Uh, In a statement on Wednesday, uh, the Calgary-based TC Energy uh, said it would work with the regional regulators uh, to dismantle their equipment and ensure safe uh, termination of the exit uh, from the area uh, where the construction has been planned. So it sounds like the company itself is packing up and going home, as it were, which is really good. Well, probably um, causing too much headache at this point. Essentially, yeah. I mean, it's that uh, hopefully the more that it gets uh, pushed around all the time, the more that people just can't be bothered to deal with it. Yep. Um, on the first day in office, uh, Joe Biden cancelled a permit to allow the project to cross into the US amid concerns uh, that it would worsen climate change. No, duh. Uh, Mr. Biden's decision came over objections of U.S. lawmakers, including members of his own party, who said that the project would have created energy sector and construction jobs for American workers. Now, I read on a uh, a thing the other day that the amount of construction and energy workers was equivalent to one sort of large, uh, I I believe it's called an Arby's, which is an American food chain, somewhat like a, a restaurant sort of thing. 
they, they basically worked it out that it would be the equivalent of one of these Arby's restaurants shutting down uh, is the equivalent amount of jobs, which I don't see them jumping to save failing restaurants in America. So no. um, seems well, a bit odd. So I mean, maybe because... they could all go and work at an Arby's, whatever, you know, whatever they serve there. <laughs> it, it kind of represents a political symbol, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's more of what one party is like dominating. One party is more, I don't know if dominating was the right word. Um, but yeah, it's just a political symbol that we can do this and we can do it because it's yeah. our God given right to do it. And that it's a lot thing. easier. It's a lot easier for Fluff. someone to stand there next to a pipeline and look like it's impressive mm. than stand next to a restaurant and go, look at this. <laughs> so, um, on Wednesday, a group of Republican senators uh, introduced legislation that would force Biden's administration to account for the number of jobs lost due to the project. So there you go. They're probably all going to get a job in a restaurant somewhere. So, you know. Yeah, just build, build, build an Arby's. There we go. Well, yeah, put it on where the, the pipeline was. Yeah. Uh, on Wednesday, a group of, uh, sorry, uh, the Keystone XL pipeline uh, would have strengthened U.S. independency uh, while supporting thousands of high paying jobs in U.S. Canada, uh, U.S. and Canada. So, yeah, essentially, um, it would appear that, yet again, the Americans are annoyed that uh, Joe Biden is not um, destroying natural habitat and essentially a lot of people's homes uh, as well, because I'm just bringing a map up of the uh, the pipeline itself. So, like I say, it goes from uh, Alberta in Canada right the way down to uh, Nebraska into uh, to Steel City, actually, in Kansas, which is on the, the border. So the thing would have gone down through Alberta, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Nebraska, essentially going over a lot of um, Native American lands uh, that yeah. are only there in the first place because we uh, essentially went, well, we like where you're living. So we're going to shift you all the way out into the West and, and you know, you'll be, you'll be you fine. Reserves. Here's these reserves. Uh but you know what? We want a bit more of your reserves, so we're just going to cram you in a bit further. Oh, we're going to build a pipeline over your reserves as well. So, uh, yeah, that uh, <laughs> that doesn't really um, help uh, with any sort of relations in any way, shape or form. But a lot of the activists uh, who were fighting to basically stop this were well, not just environmentalists, but n- Native American people <clears throat> who didn't want to see their, their lands being destroyed again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Good news on both fronts, and hopefully, like with uh, what Drew's just uh, said before for, for North Devon, hopefully we're not going to see a return of somebody else just changing it because they have money and power. So, yes. yeah, that is our news articles yeah. for this week. It's a rare... Yeah, eat the rich. Yeah, <laughs> it's a double whammy of anti-capitalism, uh, <laughs> environmentalism. So, uh, yeah, we're... Once again, I mean, I am super impressed that councillors in Devon have actually uh, stood up for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then equally, actually, the, well, two, uh, two didn't. Two didn't, no. But I would expect a lot more to have to, to have gone through with it, considering our, our well, the local history, uh, local political history, I should say. Yeah, I'm quite impressed. Also, Biden, like I, we keep saying, like we don't think he's a saint, but yeah. he continues to make these moves that are very good for the environment, or shall we say, promising for the environment. Well, yeah, they're basically backtracking, uh, backtracking yeah. bad moves, aren't they? Yeah, 
Yeah. The the other problem I I think that Biden has, and this is from my very limited uh, grasp of U.S. politics, is he's got people in his own administration who are who who deem him a leftist, um, when in fact he's about as centre <laughs> as you can be. Um, so he's he's seen as a radical by the right and a radical by some of the people in his party, and to they be then, fair, though. then they then want. Uh, they want cooperation between themselves and the Republicans and the Republicans, all they want is just to get their own way and do it at whatever cost they can. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, like yeah. I say, he's, he himself is not a saint. Um, no. no one's perfect. Uh, American politics is quite interesting because well, me and Gareth were talking about this earlier. They, they, they don't like a centralized government. So all the States have the, have their own kind of government. Um, but also, that doesn't actually seem. When people say about the left in America, it, it 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 confuses me slightly because over here in the UK, we have quite a defined right wing, quite a defined left wing, and then you have the central centralists are quite. You can define them. You can easily pick out who belongs where. And some people blur the lines in their own lives. Personally, they they group different things and stuff. But in America, it's almost like. What some people, some of my mates that, that I talk to in America, some of what they consider to be left is actually kind of right. <laughs> and then what yeah. they consider to be right is actually kind of far right. <laughs> it's like they don't yeah. have a clearly defined left. I think just very quickly, I think the problem is on that political scale. And it is very much the same here in the UK as well, because we're following America's, uh, we're following their shadow. We're in their shadow. Yeah, uh, is yeah, that for the, sure is that the, the right has been in power for so long that the line that was the centre has moved further and further over to the right. And now things yeah, that yeah. are considered leftist used to be quite central. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah I but, agree. Uh, and, the, and the environment suffers at the end of the day. Exactly. Well, we've now brought it all down from bringing yes. it all up. So we'll now... It's all good news. Yeah, we'll, we'll now go on to our uh, this week's Creature Feature where Aaron's going to be talking about an animal, like say, that... I'm I'm vaguely certain. I don't think anyone's really heard of before, but and no one cares about. No, no, I don't think they do actually. I hate this animal. It's the creature feature. Okay, well now we're into our creature feature. This week, Aaron is going to be going over a. Well, it's a dinosaur that. I mean, I I I think I've heard of it. I, Drew, I think you've heard of it as well, possibly. I don't so think really, so. I don't think so. I saw it written down. I thought, what is that? It's a really under, <laughs> under underwhelming animal, really. Yeah. Um, but we'll let Aaron uh, discuss what what little information there might be about this particular animal. Uh, so take it away, Aaron. Okay, so there is <laughs> there is a lot of information about this incredibly underrated and and not particularly interesting uh, species that I haven't been trying to talk about for ages. Uh, but... So I am actually going to split my creature feature on them up into parts uh so for example part two will be called uh reproduction and the dinosaur that never existed but this is part one and part one is simply known as uh well part one an introduction <laughs> so the subject matter that i've been dying to talk about since this podcast creation and have been trying to drip feed you all since day one uh, will be the topic of today's creature feature. Um, and I do kind of intend to break away from my usual creature feature regimen. I want to make this kind of immersive and discussion-led, at least in part. 
Uh, so I'm going to get you guys to uh, follow along with this and get you involved, if that's okay, uh, Drew and Gareth. Uh, cool. Uh, I hope that you at home will absorb some of the more specific details I drop along the way. And maybe you can tell us on social media at what point in this story you figure out what we're what we're talking about. OK, so imagine for a moment uh, that we are a team of time traveling zoologists. Uh, we're going on an expedition back some 66 to 68 million years. And we're taking you, the listener, along for the ride. Uh, so waking up in the late Cretaceous semi-tropical landscape of Laramidia. And guys, when we talk about Laramidia, where exactly are we talking about in uh, modern terms? It sounds like a disease. Well, I mean, I, I know <laughs> I know where we are, but that uh, did you want me to say? <laughs> yes, yes. This is a question to you guys. We're, we're <laughs> taking them on a classroom journey. Okay, right. Well, um, oh. Laramidia is, is one of the two or three landmasses that make up North America at, at that point. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think we're on the western side of the Western Interior Seaway. That is correct. If, if I remember talking... correctly, he does. He no, does. No, he, he's just being modest. <laughs> I remember whether it was on the west or the east. It's essentially from Alaska through western United States of America to Mexico. It's quite a big area, but as you say, it's on the western the western side. Uh, the two areas are called Laramidia, uh, and that's on the west, and then to the east is Appalachia, uh, and they're separated by like quite a shallow sea, really, full of other dangers that I'm sure we'll get into at another point. So yeah, where we find ourselves um, positioned in an open forest, not far from a beach, and unfortunately next to a sizable pile of dung. Uh, it's not more than a day or so old. Uh, and its fibrous nature shows that it is clearly herbivorous in origin. So, team, what kind of species in this period and in this location uh, could we potentially be trailing here? Well, uh, let me just have a taste of the dung. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get your, hands, get your hands in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's got his uh, hands in it. Yeah. Oh, we need some, like, noise. We need some, like, squelching noises. Uh, it's... Um, oh, it's wet. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have to say it's 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 uh, it's tasting hadrosaury, you know, a little bit. I mean, that's probably a safe bet, isn't it? Yeah, it's most, probably most of the landmass is hadrosaur currently. <laughs> or is it so? so yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, they always taste the same to me. <laughs> Poo's poo at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> Shape is more fench way. <laughs> So, yeah, we, we're talking, uh, we could be talking about hadrosaurs, of which there are a staggering variety of forms in Laramidia at this time. Like, you've got your, your popular ones like Edmontosaurus and Parasaurolophus that people tend to know uh, when you talk about them. Uh, also, the sauropods, to an extent, seem to be clinging on just about, having disappeared from uh, the other landmass we spoke about, Appalachia. So you're talking about, like, Alamosaurus, which was the last known representative in this part of the world. And then you've got your armoured tanks. So you've got the Ankylosaurus and you've got Ceratops, you know, like Triceratops. But uh, yeah, Hadrosaurus is a, is a damn good bet there. So we head down to the beach where we are lucky enough to find yet more dung. But this pile is smaller and fresher and still steaming. I'm not there eating any more dung. I'm, I'm you sorry. don't have to eat this one. You don't have to eat this one. Drew's going to wash it off for us. Good, good. <laughs> so, right. uh, so yeah, this is much fresher. Um, there are prints in the sand, uh, a large track and a slightly smaller one. 
Um, we give the dung, or Drew gives the dung, a quick rinse in the waves to find that they are in fact bone fragments. So now we know we're talking carnivorous species. I can hear you eating the uh, poo there. <laughs> no, that's, me, that's me sipping it. It's the same sound effect. Sipping, <laughs> sipping it after it's been diluted in water. <laughs> same, yeah. So it's salty, watered down carnivorous I'm mining for, for gold. <laughs> Well, by default of the sample size itself, we can essentially rule out the dromaeosaurids as culprits. So uh, maybe between the two of you, you can list off uh, what other large carnivores are wandering around at this time. Oof. Well, you've got some members of the abelosaurs left in North America, but not very many at this point. They've disappeared. The carcharodontosaurus uh, have, have gone extinct by this point. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, there there could be one or two uh, larger ornithomimids, so uh, the, the the they might be um, having a bit of a nibble on the odd bit of bone. But uh, I mean, without knowing the eye, without saying the answer, I uh, I hesitate <laughs> to say anything. Well, we'll uh, we'll um, it's a good 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 attempt at answer. Drew, do you want to do you want to risk any anything other? Um, is it like is it one of our is it one of our own? Have we just stumbled on our own? Our own poo. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like that guess, but no. Uh, so we we got two main I, kind of. I, I don't want to say the answer. No, it's fine. We we got two kind of groups that could be guilty of dropping this uh, dropping the poo. Uh, so you've got the Albertosaurinae, so that's your Albertosaurus and your Gorgosaurus. And you've got your Tyrannosaurinae, so Nanuxaurus hoglundi, uh, the Spletosaurus, and Teratothonius. Note that there are no Giganotosauruses on this list, uh, and we'll, I'm pretty sure that me and Gareth specifically will be revisiting this key element later on in this very episode. Almost uh, so certainly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, as you can see, there are quite a few individuals that we could attribute the, the done to, but Without seeing anything, we'll move on for now. Uh, and Gareth is getting far too distracted admiring the Beatles currently enjoying their fecal oh, fiesta. He's well, getting they've, really twitchy. They've only been around for a while at this point, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we walk along the beach following the uh, the pair of tracks until we meet a shallow estuary of a, of a very small river meandering out of the forest. The tracks lead through a humid, swampier area to this uh, swampier area of this forest, where we find they are joined by a third uh, and once again larger set. Here we find the almost entirely consumed remains of an adolescent Triceratops. So that might be who dropped the first poo that we found. Uh, we have some laceration evident in what little flesh there is uh, left to evaluate, but what is most noticeable is the significant damage apparent to the bone tissues. So of the bone tissue that isn't damaged beyond analysis, and this stuff is crushed, man, like really hammered, we have obvious bite impacts um, with uh, striations along one side and ever so slightly D-shaped, where the, where the tooth has basically scraped itself in and, uh, and penetrated the bone. A few feet away, Drew actually finds a tooth, which is a lucky find. It's uh, bloodied and broken at the root and uh, quite clearly snapped off in a struggle. Measuring his find, we can see that the tooth reaches just a shade under six inches from tip to root line. 
And the D-shaped cross-section with its serrated edge fits perfectly with one of the bite impacts. So I think we can now say we have our culprit. Jack the Ripper. Jack no, the Ripper. Chupacabra. Chupacabra. Yeah. <laughs> Bigfoot. Yeah, it's been, been sucked dry of blood. Yeah. <laughs> so not too far off in the distance, Head we Bundy. actually see a family. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. That's all right. I didn't hear what you said. Oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> not, <laughs> not too far off in the distance, we see a family. Two impressively large theropods standing at 13 foot tall, balanced by long muscular tails, sending the total body length of one to about 40 foot. The other just a few feet smaller by comparison, uh, with comedically undersized forelimbs, held at the flanks or scratching an itch in the neck region, heavily muscled legs ending in feet that feature three forward-facing clawed toes and a lesser one to the rear. One uh, individual that's with this pair is somewhat smaller, covered in a thin layer of feathering and with a a slighter built head and lankier legs. So you would have probably guessed before the podcast even began that we are in fact looking at the tyrant lizard king, Tyrannosaurus Rex. Did you guys guess that or no? Uh, <laughs> I thought we were here to look at cows. cows. Yeah. It, I, I felt like it built mystery well, that story. No, that's true. Um, should we probably move? Because these things, you know, would probably eat a human. Well, yeah, we probably should. We're going to find cover and observe Who's from a distance. Who's the fastest of us? That was definitely not me. Or who's the slowest? It doesn't really matter who's fastest, just so long as who's quickest to stick a foot out and trip the others. Oh, that's definitely me then. (laughs) By the way, I once said that to my boss when we were in a tiger enclosure. He said, what would you do if if the tiger got out with us? I said, I'd trip you and run. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. You don't work there anymore, do you? (laughs) No, I don't work there anymore. But we're good friends. Employers should should appreciate honesty. (laughs) Absolutely. Maybe not the manslaughter element, but yeah. <laughs> whilst we're uh, whilst we're cowering from these uh, from the rexes, I'll, I'll I'll go into some detail about them. So T. Rex was a carnivorous, non-avian theropod, and I prefer this term over over dinosaur, as it is a far better way of genuinely kind of separating and categorizing what we're talking about when we're talking about extant creatures and certain traditionally seen as dinosaur species in light of the fact that birds are, in fact, dinosaurs and very much still alive today. So standing out, like I say, 13 feet tall to the hip and 40 feet in length, that's kind of the largest uh, specimen so far. They might not be the largest carnivorous dinosaur uh, to have ever lived, but they are certainly well up there. Their heads were huge and very heavy, um, and it contained all kinds of uh, sensory equipment. So they had, contrary to what, what you might think if you've watched certain franchises they had spectacular vision in fact we think that it was sharper than modern hawks and likely able to distinguish objects at around six kilometers away uh this likely aided in the the uh predatory aspect of their dietary habits um they also had a keen sense of smell and a large portion of the brain capacity was given over to olfactory evaluation uh is likely comparable to that of a domestic cat and this probably in itself aided the scavenging aspect of their dietary habits, because here we like to deal in what the real world shows us and not biases uh, held by children, basically. 
their teeth were also huge. Uh, so about 12 inches long, uh, with six inches being exposed from the gum from beyond the gum line with strong muscular jaws coupled with around 60 of these teeth and a maximum jaw gape of 80 degrees, a rex could essentially crush bone and tear flesh with a bite pressure of 12,800 PSI. However, due to a lesser degree of neck-to-head maneuverability uh, from what you'd see in other theropods of similar size, it's likely that rexes would process the meat that they'd eat by shaking their heads in a similar fashion to crocodiles. So just imagine T-Rexes doing death rolls. Don't, because that's not <laughs> actually accurate, but yeah. So moving on to their arms, these were, as I say, they're, they're notoriously tiny and they, they've become the butt of many jokes and memes. But in reality, these arms were probably no joke at all. So they're about three foot long and armed with purple talons. Um, they're also pretty well backed up with some serious muscles. So they were likely able to grip and tear at flesh that was in close proximity to them. In addition, studies of the powerful hind limbs have led many a researcher down a deep wonder hole, uh, with speed estimates placing tyrannosaurs anywhere between 20 to 10 mile per hour, um, literally every single speed between those numbers has been kind of guessed or estimated but the back legs were incredibly muscular in part to support a heavy body because uh, the t-rex was no leaf assassin um in addition to the these muscular legs the the hollow bones of the animal together with longer shin feet and toe kind of skeletal structures uh, relative to their femur um which is the bone in the upper leg uh, as well as interlocked foot bones produced an advanced ankle apparatus in rexes amongst their fellow theropods. And it may have allowed for um, more running efficiency to get around the fact that they were so so bulky as animals. And it made it easier for them to transmit movement from the foot to the lower leg more effectively than earlier theropods. So it's likely that they actually may have been able to shift when they wanted to. Uh, recent studies further suggest that rexes were energy efficient during walking, reaching speeds of maximum three mile per hour uh, and preferring this form of locomotion. And actually, in fact, more agile than many of the other larger body theropods. Uh, they likely favoured long distance stalking at a walking pace, followed by a sharp, explosive kind of burst of energy uh, in their hunting method. Uh, interestingly, because I never imagined they could do this, but... Studies of their of their skeletal structure suggest that they could actually pivot on a single foot. So they could hold their, their one leg up, pivot on one foot, turning a full uh, 180 degrees before putting the, that raised foot back down to the floor and, and uh, continuing the chase. So the most recent estimates for top speed seem to be um, come from two different places. One study suggests that they could run at 17 miles per hour. The other says that if they ran any faster than 11 miles per hour, their legs would explode. So the jury is still clearly very much out, drunk and confused, fighting over who pissed on their leg uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, T-Rex um, top speed. So due to that large head that we mentioned earlier, one of the functions of this animal's tail was to act, as I say, as a counterbalance to basically stop the T-Rex from face planting and dragging its head around on the floor. But it would have also acted as a almost like a rudder to help them, especially when they pivot like that. It would have helped kind of counter the 
the momentum to allow them to make sharp turns. So the next thing I want to talk about is the eternal argument over their food sourcing strategies. Uh, it's never quite been agreed on. There was a rather weak argument put forward in 1917 for Rexes being purely scavengers due to the wear on their teeth compared to um, the related Gorgosaurus teeth. Uh, but this is flawed reasoning because essentially ignores ignores completely the fact that theropods like these uh, replace their teeth constantly throughout their lives. So if you are looking at a specimen, a fossil that has had a few good meals and then not had as many good meals, then it stands to reason that the Rex um, one would have more wear. Unfortunately, world-renowned paleontologist and someone that I actually have quite a bit of respect for generally, uh, Jack Horner has been a propagator of the PSC scavengers in no small part because he has a poorly veiled disliking for the species. On the other hand, though, we have the Jurassic franchise fans and a small but loud community of what you could refer to as awesome bros types who <laughs> basically have the Rex pegged as a pure predator. Essentially, this belief stems from the fact that scavengers are somehow weak and not awesome bro. So, yeah, you have that. But realistically, if you have a look at the world around you, look at all the carnival, the large carnivals that have come and gone uh, before and after the T-Rex and their hunting strategies, I think it's more realistic uh, and far more likely that they employed a large amount of both scavenging and hunting. If anything, it makes them more interesting. Uh, so I have no idea why these people on both sides seem to cling to one argument and like with absolute fervent like determination over an animal they've never seen hunt or scavenge in their life well it's the same with um people's views on hyenas and lions and everything oh, people, yeah. always, people always paint the hyena as the evil one and the dirty one the dirty scavenger and the lion as the regal hunter but actually lions scavenge just as much as hyenas and hyenas are known to hunt yeah i think it's got a lot to do with uh people's views and cultural views as to what is considered clean and or dirty yeah. an animal what is considered noble and what is considered uh you know horrible and all these things that have just permeated throughout history um, yeah, yeah. it's yeah, it's but... the same thing isn't it it's as um you know like especially i would say in british culture um where hunting's a bit different over here in that what you do to hunt is you get all your dogs together, go out on a very well-groomed horse, dress up in your Sunday best, blow a horn and go, dur, 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 I'm coming with my rifle. And then off you go to, uh, to, to shoot. Obliterate a, a small mammal, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is seen as a popular and gen uh, uh, something to do by the gentry. Uh, whereas... A like picking scraps off the floor is seen as a very peasant-like thing, um, so I think it probably stems from from that. You've also got this the the view as well that uh, Tyrannosaurus is the king of dinosaurs. This is why I actually uh, agree with Jack Horner in, in in some ways of not liking Tyrannosaurus as much as popular media makes people like them because they just take up all of the other. You know, they, they are the uh, the the type... they're the sponge of interest. Basically, and if you if you're interested in dinosaurs, your 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 interest. In, I say this as someone who likes T Rexes. Your interest immediately goes to T Rex to the neglect of everything else. 
Yes, yeah. And uh, especially it's, if it's, you're one of these awesome bros. Yeah, it's it's really sad because a lot of other uh, animals, a lot of other dinosaurs don't get anywhere near the amount of uh, research done on them. For instance, a dinosaur that um, is quite well known in the public eye, Allosaurus, mm -hmm. is remarkably understudied because most people who are going to be studying large theropods are going to be studying tyrannosaurs because yeah. there there is also a preservation bias as well. There's far more bits of tyrannosaur in some of these places than there are bits of allosaurs. So uh, the uh, the allosaurs and, and, and other theropods get massively understudied. I personally yeah. prefer allosaurus to T-Rex. I do as well. I mean, I really like allosaurus. Uh, I you you both know that my p particular sort of favorite is spinosaurus but uh, that's more yeah. just to annoy you too baryonyx <laughs> <laughs> well, i don't really I, I mean i say t-rex is my favorite t-rex triceratops and bopterix on brachium dynamicus they they're my favorites but i don't genuinely like discriminate a favorite because uh I, yeah. I mean i think they're all cool i think they all have something different to offer i love allosaurus some of the more recent discoveries about Allosaurus have been fascinating. Anyway, I shall continue. Um, so, yeah, it's likely that they did both. Um, scavenging wherever and whenever possible is sensible. And this species, uh, they, they, there is evidence that this is an intelligent species that we're talking about. Furthermore, physiologically, the adaptations present on T-Rex suggest a powerful Cretaceous killer. So... Not only are you backed up by millions upon millions of years of large carnivorous animals uh, employing both scavenging and hunting strategies, you've got the physiological adaptations present in this in in the skeletal structure alone to suggest this animal did both. So I, I yeah, it's just a, I, as we were saying, I think it's a class type of thing. Um, but speaking of what they'd eat, I think we'd already kind of mentioned it. You've got your hadrosaurs, you've got your ceratopsians, you've got the occasional young sauropods, um, you've got ankylosaurs, that kind, those kind of species. However, interestingly, also cannibalism. So they have actually found that um, uh, juvenile rexes have been killed and consumed by by adult rexes. Um, they found the teeth the basically the teeth indentations on them. So, yeah. And the last thing I want to touch on very briefly, because this is going to be more to do with part two, is social life. Uh, so we've always thought of these guys as solitary animals. There is a kind of newer movement gaining uh, momentum that these guys are uh, are actually social. Uh, so recent studies have cut that I, I actually covered in one of my news articles allowed for estimated brackets for population density to be plotted. And whilst they seem to talk about rexes from the position of them being solitary, the sheer volume of these animals estimated to coexist at any one time in, in a certain amount of space certainly seems to suggest that they were probably a more social creature than we give them credit for. Fossils have also been found in, in such close proximity that it could further suggest a social structure uh, being, um, being present. And also the fact that many of their prey were well protected. You have armoured animals like the ankylosaurs and you have uh, animals that have massive spikes on their heads like the triceratops. This is not an easy prey to take down. If you have help, it becomes 
so much more accessible. But at the moment, nothing seem nothing peer reviewed seems to support this theory. It all seems to come from uh, one person called uh, known as Philip J. Curry. Uh, but at the moment, there's no peer reviewed kind of evidence um, to support it. But I certainly think that's an interesting avenue to go down. But I am going to wrap part one of Tyrannosaurus up uh, here because there's so much more we could talk about and we just run out of time uh, if we did. Uh, I'll do another part at a later date. If you've listened all the way through to this point, I uh, I thank you from the bottom of my heart because uh, I struggled over some of the words and stuttered quite a bit through that. <laughs> but uh, I hope it was at least interesting and a, a little bit of fun. Hmm. And believe me, I would have liked to have gone on for a lot longer to discuss the uh, the group dynamics of tyrannosaurs and whether it's a question of we're we're seeing something that's there or seeing something that's not there based on finding fossils together mm. uh, that might be totally unrelated. But I too also go on the thought that uh, they're probably a group living animal. Well, they could, they could be social. That fossil suggests it either suggests that they're social or it suggests that what I said a little bit earlier that they're cannibals well yeah it also suggests that two animals died at the same time that may never time met each other and just fallen in the same river well yeah there we go there there is part one of tyrannosaurus an animal that uh, is probably going to take well many many uh, creature features to fully cover but then again we could do that with pretty much any of the animals that we mm. bring on for our creature features it's just that there is an awful weight of knowledge about Tyrannosaurus. And there's also a huge amount of questions. The, ir- the irony is, is that obviously Aaron said that, you know, you guys said that so much time and effort is put into uh, T-Rex in comparison to other dinosaurs. And we put, we're now doing two creature features on T-Rex where everyone <laughs> else gets one. <laughs> you guys I'm, are helping. <laughs> we've, we've bought into the, uh, to the stereotype, unfortunately. We're drinking the T-Rex Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah. We're, giving, we're giving the people what they want. They want. Are we awesome, bros? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think I've okay. ever been described as that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been called awesome. <laughs> anyway, we'll move on from Tyrannosaurus, uh, the real life animal, to our pop culture corner, where I get the feeling uh, I'm going to have a bit of a rant. So is Aaron uh, about the latest information about um, the new Jurassic World film. Oh, look, it's. Culture Corner. Okay, well, it's Pop Culture Corner this week. And following on with uh, our sort of Tyrannosaurid theme, we're going to look at the announcements that came out this week um, about the new Jurassic World film, uh, Jurassic World Dominion, and specifically the, uh, the the release information that came out, I believe, from a tweet from Colin Trevorrow, where he's saying that the film is going to have well, this particular bit is going to be coming out with the new Fast and Furious film, which just seems like an odd thing to mix it with, really. But uh, yeah, so uh, coming out with this Fast and the F- uh, Furious 90 million, whichever one it is, um, is supposed to be a fairly short trailer film That's right. Et, as it were. This one's supposed to be set 65 million years ago. At least they get in the time period, correct? And sees, although we should probably state, spoiler warning for this particular thing. If you're going to the cinema to go and see this particular uh, trailer thing, so spoiler warning from this point in, is that uh, you see the original T-Rex that is in the film. This is the one that the DNA is extracted from. 
fighting a Giganotosaurus, <laughs> which I'll bring my uh, problems with in a minute. Apparently losing to the Giganotosaurus and being killed, and then uh, essentially a mosquito feeding off this dead T-Rex and presumably showing the, the mosquito being trapped in amber before then being dug up millions of years later to then be cloned and mixed around with frogs who were to then breed the T-Rex that we see in the original film and all the other subsequent films that have the Isla Nublar T-Rex on it. So I Rexy. think... I think I've pretty much summed up what He has a name, Gareth. Sorry, Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Who gave her oh, that name? What uninspired... I know. <laughs> it's one of those things, you know, what, what do you call the animal? You just go, wow, it's... Uh, it's a hamster, Hammy. It, yeah, Hammy the hamster. Done, sorted. Or... Sorry for everyone out there if you've got a hamster called Hammy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sorry. <laughs> But anyway, that uh, is essentially what's supposed to be happening. It's supposed to be a lead-in to the uh, the new film, which is set to to have, if I remember correctly, Sam Neill as well as um, Jeff Goldblum and Laura Dern returning and basically playing their original characters of Ian Malcolm, Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler coming back as well to let's uh, play alongside. Um, and Henry Wu. And Henry Wu. Cause, He's I mean, the hero big. of the franchise. It, would, it, wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be much without him. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've got to love BD Wong. He's he's the uh, the heart and soul of the franchise. In fact, I think it was he was even in Camp Cretaceous doing the voice of his his own character as well. I don't know if he was the voice or not. I'd have to I'd have to double check that, and I'm not going to do that right now. But that all links. Into <laughs> that. That's that's still quite good anyway. Um, Camp yeah, Cretaceous so is great. My issue, and this is purely because I am that much of a dino nerd and. And one of those people who, the moment I heard this, went, I have a problem with that. <laughs> I have two problems. The first one is because I end up doing enough dino education things in, in the line of work and various things. And because this film will come out and because having played Ark in the past and various other things that have Giganotosaurus in them, no one bothers to learn how to say Giganotosaurus. And they all just say Gigantosaurus. And I'm going to spend the next God knows how many years having to correct people saying Gigantosaurus as opposed to Giganotosaurus. That really <laughs> burns at me in a, in a sort of a deep way. It's, it's, it's really kind of bad. Um, that's not my biggest concern. It's my biggest concern is the fact that it has a Giganotosaurus fighting a Tyrannosaurus. Now, obviously, they've done this because they want a film where they have, well, they've, they've already said they're not going to do any more hybrids, Indominus Rex and all these sort of things. But they've essentially gone, well, we need another big bad. I know, find the next biggest dinosaur to T-Rex. And you've only got a few options anyway. So Spinosaurus, well, <laughs> the Spinosaurus <laughs> that we see in the third film looks totally different to how a Spinosaurus should actually look. And would be a very, very odd fight if that happened. This sort of four-leg walking, essentially crocodile creature coming towards a T-Rex. I, I think the T-Rex would very much win in that sense. But the only other choices you've got is Giganotosaurus and Mapusaurus as well. Two of the larger Carcharodontosaurid dinosaurs from South America. Now, T-Rex lived in the Maastrichtian uh, 66 to 65 million years ago, as Aaron pointed out earlier. Whereas the uh, Gigalosaurus lived in the Cenomanian era, 
which is in the early Cretaceous, about 90 million years ago. So these are two animals that lived on two different parts of the planet that would have never have met because they hadn't, or one of them hadn't even evolved yet. So um, if they're setting this at a point where it's supposed to be the actual past, that's, that's my biggest issue is they've just gone, find the next biggest dinosaur, have them fight. You know, why, why couldn't it have been another T-Rex killing it? Mm. They could have done that. That would have worked perfectly well. They don't need a Giganotosaurus to do that. And then you can have a Giganotosaurus turn up in, in the film later on because it is just another recreated thing for, for that franchise. But the only other bit that they've got... So we, we, we seem to have worked out it's either a, a Moridus intrepidus, a small Tyrannosaurid that is in this picture that you see next to an animal's lower jaw, or whether it's a Pyroraptor, which is also apparently going to be in the film as well. So... Both of those are two animals that wouldn't have also featured in that same area as well. One of them lived in Europe um, and one of them had gone extinct by this point. So those are my only real issues. But then again, if you start picking Jurassic Park apart, it really comes apart very, very quickly. But I also like that film as well. So it's not going to stop me from seeing it, but it's going to stop me from enjoying that particular trailer, knowing that... Uh, they they had the choice of a T Rex. I, I mean, they've they've got their pick. They've got their pick of North America sixty five million years ago, and all part... the creatures that are on it. They've got their pick. Yeah. Like why why have you gone for some random dinosaurs that lived either in Europe or uh, South America, which were not connected? Well, they... I did list all the large theropods in my creature feature. Yeah. They could have they yeah. could have they could have called me. They could have called me <laughs> and asked what what all large theropod can we have? Yeah. <laughs> But that's that's the thing is it seems like they've gone for we need the next biggest dinosaur. And I can guarantee if there hadn't have been a Spinosaurus in Jurassic Park 3, they would have had a Spinosaurus for this film. That's that's my thought is they've gone for the next biggest carnivorous dinosaur to have it fight. Oh. But my rant. I, <laughs> I was I said before this started that I was going to play devil's advocate. But then as Gareth's been talking, I remembered that in the creature feature, I've already given away that I'm completely against this scene. So, <laughs> I, I so just so it's out there, yeah, I'm I agree 100% with Gareth. But just to give the devil's advocate point of view, I will just kind of say this film franchise doesn't happen in our universe. This is a parallel universe because this is a universe where velociraptors are taller than humans. Uh, now we know that they weren't that's all at all uh this is a uh, universe where you can use amphibian dna to bring back extinct essentially reptile birds so the leaps necessary to so so yeah it winds it winds me up but the leaps necessary to believe that a giganotosaurus and a t-rex could have a fight in prehistory are not nearly as big as the leaps necessary to believe that dinosaurs can be brought back to life through frog dna so whilst the idea of it, the concept of it really does wind me up, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to enjoy my popcorn and I'm going to enjoy two monsters, because that's what they are, they're monsters, that's all it not, is, yeah. not dinosaurs, fighting. I mean, in this Jurassic franchise, the only time we've seen feathers even hinted at is in the worst movie that they've made in Jurassic Park 3, when you had just a couple quills on just the male uh, velociraptors, so... So yeah, I, I I'm gonna enjoy this for what it is, and that is oh, just a popcorn. Yeah. Undoubtedly, I'll end up 
watching it, undoubtedly I'll probably end up enjoying it. But uh... also, if if I could just wind you up even more, Gareth, yeah. this is not a trailer. Is this, <laughs> this not is a trailer? actually going to be a an actual mini scene like Battle of Big Rock? So you're talking okay. about a little bit longer than a trailer that you have to tolerate this. It's fine. Hey, if I, I, I mean, I'm not going to be going and seeing the Fast and the Furious, but uh, as soon as it's oh, God, on, no. it online, I'm going to uh, to watch it, and uh, I will probably enjoy it as much as I'll have to really grip my teeth at the fact that I'm watching a Giganotosaurus fight a T-Rex. But you know, it's uh, it's one of those things. Yeah, I, I've remained relatively quiet, relatively uh, within it's this. It's never cause... a good sign in this situation. Yeah. I basically is out of complete apathy. Uh, so I just, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less about this film. I thought Fallen Kingdom was absolute gash and Jurassic World was just okay, but full of flaws. And yeah. like linking it with the stuff you were talking about with Awesome Bros before, Aaron, I think these oh, films are oh. now just, they're just trying to be cool. And that's their only defining feature. Uh, I think it's lost its character. It's lost its message. Uh, the original Jurassic Park as you guys said, the, the animals are like monsters now. The original Jurassic Park had it had some monsters. Flaws, I think they were monsters too. Yeah, but it had its message that nature is a far more powerful force than anything we can conjure up, and yes, and that it should be respected. And I think the sad irony of it is that the original film was about respecting nature, and the sequels do quite the opposite. I'd say they're just yeah. full of cool ideas that have been thrown into the mixer and just spits out a film full of well. substance. I mean, that's missed out the for you. Yeah, these are not animals; they're just monsters. And I, yeah, and I, it annoys me actually that it sort of shits on that that original message. The the one good news bit of this that I would say, I mean, other than it's a film, you know, it's going to be something to watch, is that they are uh, they have showed the trailer for the new Jurassic World Evolution game, which seems to tie in with the films, and that looks interesting enough and I will probably end up going down the route of acquiring that at some point when it comes out. So uh another, yeah, interest, another interesting game. Interest in that one for fans of the first one in the so the the pterosaurs are hinted at heavily. So we're probably gonna have some some flying things. However, they're talking about 75 new species on top of the ones that are already in Jurassic Evolution one. And there's no I don't way think it's on top they... of it's including with no, them, is it? it's a new no, roster. It's uh, no, it's on top oh. of. Is it? It oh. said in the article it was on top of. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's it's on top of. A anyway, that what what I was gonna get to was that um there's no way that they've brought in the um the mechanic and the um environment for marine reptiles just for the mosasaur. I, I think that they're gonna have other marine reptiles in this. Almost certainly. Um, I think it would be... Uh, Burn on the elasmosaurs. <laughs> Can I give you some oh. good news, Gareth? You and are. possibly you, Drew. But you don't care, so it doesn't... Is it, I don't care. Is yeah, it, you, you guys you guys just tell me how the film is. Alan, Alan Grant, Ellie Sattler, and Ian Malcolm, those, those three characters, according to Colin Trevorrow, they're actually going to be in the whole movie. They're not going to be little cameos. <laughs> not like in the last film where they... Uh... All the promotional material had uh, Jeff Goldblum in, you know, what mm -hmm. looked like was going to be the whole thing. And he's in for a couple of minutes at the beginning, a couple of minutes at the end. I mean, take it with a huge grain of salt. But yeah, that's that's what Colin Trevorrow has said, is that they're going to be in the whole movie. And that he was only supposed to have the cameo in that film as a way of setting up, tying the old franchise to the new franchise. Yeah. Well, the problem I, with I the don't use... know. I, like, you keep bringing these old characters back and 
like various different franchises now, decades later. But I think it's just because you can't make your own characters likable enough for uh, us to care about. I think it's quite cheap writing, and I don't think <laughs> these films can can hold a, a candle up to what Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum helped create. And I think their inclusion within this is just going to make that glaringly obvious. To be fair, they made the two best movies, but Sam Neill and, and uh, Laura Dern were involved in the worst movie of all five. I'm always yeah, yeah. going to stand up for the third one here. I'm sorry. I don't care. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is absolute rubbish. I'm so bad. I'm not defending the the story. The story, the plot, the, the, it has, the breaking universal it law. The best looking raptors. The pteranodons in that are the best looking pteranodons in the entire. No, raptor. they have teeth. Yeah, they've got uh, teeth. Minus the lost the world, minus, the lost world ones look better. Minus the teeth issue, they're the best looking ones. And I think an animal that's literally called winged and toothless, <laughs> and including the teeth. Of, yeah, all right. I, mean, I don't think you could. I don't think you could sully that animal enough without without I, giving I it no wings. Just removing you... the wings. Oh, look I'm at these wings, no teeth, and they got they got Jurassic teeth and no wings. World. I Jurassic think... Park 3, you forgive, despite the tooth pteranodons. I think we should end this soon before people start realise that we're not actually friends, we should argue. <laughs> <laughs> it's got Ceratosaurus in it as well, and I like Ceratosaurus. I do like Ceratosaurus, but it's... again, he was huge. How can you How can you forgive these glaring flaws and because then moan about Giganotosaurus? As we've already discussed, these are not real dinosaurs. These are genetically recreated monsters. The Giganotosaurus that will appear in the Battle at Big Rock style trailer film is supposed to be the actual animal. So that's the. But issue. it's in a universe where they, they use amphibian DNA. In, in, can... this, in this universe, Ceratosaurus is a fat dinosaur. A fat dinosaur that eats and poo. Pteranodon <laughs> literally means I have teeth in my beak, even though my name doesn't mean that. <laughs> Oh, God, I'm not going to enjoy editing this. <laughs> anyway, let's move on from this rant, because we could spend all night doing this and get absolutely nowhere and probably lose all listeners. Um, yeah. Aaron's on hold. Uh, we'll go from this into our mail back. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Okay, well, it's that time of the episode again, where we go delving into our mailbag. Uh, and this week, we've got the honour of uh, basically saying that all of the questions this week um, were the winners of our sticker competition. So we asked people to send in their questions uh, for some exclusive stickers. Ooh. So we will be uh, contacting uh, the winners through messages and that to, uh, to basically find out where they live so we can send them some stuff. So uh, yeah, our first giveaway... Yeah, Drew's gonna hand deliver it, regardless of yeah. where you are in the world. I'm, I'm gonna, in my van again. Yeah, he's gonna get his van. He's gonna come find you. <laughs> anyway, so the first question that we have uh, is from Jess, I believe. Uh, and yeah, it is. I can deliver uh, that one easily. Throw it across the room. <laughs> good, good. Um, <laughs> so uh, the question is: What came first, Bufatine the toxin, or Bufatoxin, or Bufo the toad? So I can say that, well, essentially the, the toxin, bufotoxin, is found in toads. It's also found actually in, in some species of mushrooms and other amphibians as well. But it definitely gets its name from the genus bufo, which uh, has, has those very sort of stereotypical looking toads 
Um, if you live in the UK, uh, we've got Bufo Bufo, which is the common toad. There is Bufo maritinus, which is the cane toad in Australia. Uh, and if you live in Australia, you'll know just how toxic those things can be because uh, they can kill full saltwater crocodiles just by eating one. But those glands on the back of their neck... Um, That's they... the crocodile eating the toad, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's a bit harder for it to swallow. Um, so, yeah, basically those glands on the back of the neck exude a milky white substance that is called bufotoxin, uh, and it is also known to be a hallucinogenic as well. And I believe in parts of America, the it was called bufo aliaris, it's no longer called that. Uh, the Colorado River toad uh, was actually almost hunted to extinction by hippies in the 70s trying to smoke them for these psychedelic effects. However, apparently it also will send you insane if you would smoke the skin of a uh, toad. And, and to be honest, I think you deserve it if you go and do that to uh, uh, Definitely. as beautiful as one of those. Bloody so, disgusting well, yeah. behaviour. There is. The answer is that uh, the toad came first and then the, uh, then the toxin. So, Drew, you've got our second question, I believe. Uh, I do. Uh, so our second question was from, I, I want to pronounce it that indie lady, but that is spelled with a Q. And they asked, why do birds migrate to England? And does anything migrate specifically to Scotland, Wales or Ireland? Uh, they did ask a second part sort of, to this question as well that we'll, we'll get to in a, another episode, but we'll cover this one first. So, yeah, it's a really good question and it could lead to a really long answer. Um, as, of course, lots of different species migrate and they migrate for different reasons, although all are about survival and not the funsies. Uh, so I'm going to try and simplify it as best as possible. So the end of the Ice Age and the melting of ice sheets led to more opportunities in the northern hemisphere uh, for animals, particularly ones that could cover long distances. Um, so the new short wet summers with long hours of daylight were perfect for insects in the northern hemisphere. And feasting on those insects were, of course, birds. Uh, who moved with them into these newer landscapes. Um, as well as having plenty of food, the Northern Hemisphere also offered less competition than areas along the equator in the tropics and as well new places to breed. Uh, this is still the same today. So the equator in the tropics sound great uh, to live in, but competition is really fierce and there are lots of predators there. And here there's less of both. Uh, so the longer days in summer uh, also allow more times for parents to feed their young as well, which is why lots of birds choose to breed here in winter. Uh, but when winter sets in, the food runs out. So historically, birds that returned south fared better than those who remained in the northern hemisphere. So that's bird migration in a nutshell. Um, of course, it is a risky journey too, and left to natural causes and not human-caused ones, sick or weak individuals won't often make that journey of migration, uh, which will, you know is sad, but it does mean that the population as a whole remains healthy because the fittest ones breed uh, when they arrive mm. uh, when they arrive here. Um, and there are some birds also that migrate to the UK in winter. So these are birds that live further north or further uh, east. Um, and this is because the UK's winter is milder than other areas of Europe. So some populations of uh, red wings, field fares, blackbirds, starlings, and some ducks and geese species, they hop over from Scandinavia or the Baltic to the UK uh, to winter here and return to those areas in spring and summer to breed. Um, but in terms of a specific migration to Scotland, Wales or Ireland, I really struggled to think of and then also looked into it for any specific species that migrate to only one of those areas. Uh, most species that migrate to Great Britain will breed and populate the entire isles and not just one area in particular. And the only example I could think of or find were ospreys, but that's not 
they're not exclusively because they mainly go to Scotland, but they go also go to other areas of the of the of the UK too. But you can find them mainly in Scotland uh, as they migrate north. Um, and there are some resident populations of birds that can only be found in certain parts of the UK. But this is mainly down to well, it's almost unanimously down to human interference and not choice. Um, so this would include like things like capercaillies, which you can only find in Scotland. It's a large grouse and Searle buntings, which is a, a small bird that you'll only find in South Devon, and that's due to intensive farming. But yeah, in terms of actual migrants only coming to one area, uh, one country in the UK, I, I'm not sure if there are any. So yeah, I hope that's that reasonably well answered. Hmm. I was going to say, it's we're such a small part of the world that if one bird lands in one place, it's probably going to fly to the next very easily yep. and uh, expand its range. Yeah, that's fantastic. So our third and final question that we have with us is for Aaron. Uh, Aaron, if you want to take it away. Yeah, so Dan Luisietti, I think that's how you pronounce your name. Sorry if I've butchered your name. It's that Aaron's butchered word of the week. Um, You get to feel special that your name has been butchered. (laughs) Not just a sticker. You get your name butchered by Aaron as well. Lucky, lucky soul. (laughs) (laughs) Dan's question excuse me Dan's question is what animal or creature do you wish was real Um, and mentions that Phoenix is theirs so yeah I think for for me uh, I've got a couple Um, I like like the dragons obviously particularly wyverns Uh, they're incredible animals so hatch an imprint on one of those and then ride that ride that around um could sort out a few world problems with that half half the politicians responsible for all the uh for a lot of environmental problems right now they're not dealing with they're all gathered in cornwall at the moment so they're quite conveniently placed for a good okay. just, just for a disclaimer here we are not planning a terrorist attack against the no, no, no. summit if anyone is well, i don't have a dragon Although the way that aaron's laughing you wouldn't know <laughs> <laughs> i don't have a dragon so it's not gonna happen good <laughs> if we did <laughs> Uh, well, I go for a, a slightly more peaceful one as well. Like, I, I've never understood why there's such fanfare and such favoritism for unicorns. I don't get it at all. There's a horse with a horn in its head. We already have them. We have rhinos. We also have tiger antelope, which kind of resemble them a little bit. Uh, so yeah, I never got it. I much prefer Pegasus, and I never understood why Pegasus isn't popular nowadays. It, it was popular during ancient Greece. And then more, well, I was going to say more recently, but we're still talking hundreds of years ago. They, uh, it was popularised in Norse mythology, where the Valkyries rode to battle on on, uh, on winged horses that were stripped right out of ancient Greece. Um, yeah, uh, the Pegasus. What a fantastically cool animal that is. So yeah, probably dragons or, 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 or Pegasus. Drew, what would well, yours be? Uh, mine, I think, for sort of environmental reasons i like the ideas of ents and these other sort of forest guardians that you find in mythology um and fantasy so animals that once the forest has been encroached on and uh, things are cutting down all the trees and destroying those ecosystems they basically go right 
that we are physically going to fight back. So no. I like mm. the idea of events. I love Tolkien's idea uh, that he, he hated the Industrial Revolution and he, he loved the idea of basically the forest coming back and fighting. That's why he created the Ents. Uh, and I really like that too. So I'm, I'm glad he created them and I would like them to be real. So can I just point out, you guys are laughing about me about the dragon thing. Drew's on my side. <laughs> Drew's yeah, but I'm, the I'm not causing them to do it. They're, they're do, they're, they've got autonomy. Yeah, you would enable them. You'd enable the yeah, ants to go to Cornwall whilst I'm flying for the sky. Yeah, Drew's on my side, Gareth. Hey, I'm uh, I'm just making sure that we don't don't get taken down by a black helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can wage war all you want when you've got your mythological creatures. I'm gonna. I, I had I had two thoughts on this because well, three thoughts actually. You already mentioned dragons. I agree. I would definitely have a dragon. Probably a wyvern more than a dragon. I don't know. Either way. But as you already said that, uh, I'm just going to gloss over that. The, po- uh, the the particular question didn't mention how mythological these animals have to be or whatever. And because Drew's already gone into pop culture things, I was just going to say Pokemon because, I mean, some of them could be essentially just end of the world level yeah because well, you know, apparently like mr mime i just can, want to protect the environment creepy... you're all about destroying the world <laughs> that creepy creepy clown boy exactly. it can apparently vibrate your atoms can't he or vibrate yeah. your yeah you're just gonna be a super villain with some of those things you know? <laughs> <laughs> but a more more helpful one and probably more realistic and it was only because you mentioned uh and i'm gonna have to go with the uh, the giant eagles because there are oh, no eagles oh, yeah. in in prehistory or anything like that that match the size of the ones in the in the, the books and the films. And I like the fact they're intelligent as well. And, you know, it could fly to work on a uh, giant eagle. But they um, are notoriously uh, unhelpful when, well, unless they want to be. So unless they well, wanted to help yeah. you to go to work, they were not going to help They you. are extremists. Sorry, my eagle doesn't want me to come to work today. <laughs> also, I got rid of the car. If I remember right, it's the eagles gone. are... Um... Aren't they like extremist religious zealots? They they won't act because Gandalf doesn't ask them to act, and nobody can get them to act. It's the God of Middle Earth that sends them all the time. All right, fine. <laughs> I, if we're not in Middle Earth. I'm going to raise it uh, an an atheist bird and, and <laughs> just have it for transport. I don't know. I mean, I'm actually God. surprised. I, I had you pegged for a completely different animal. Look, I'm just going to go back to Pokemon. It was easier. Uh, I I was sure you were going to... Considering how much you like invertebrates and how much you like plants, I thought you were going to say Sarlacc, that you wanted to cultivate a Sarlacc. No! <laughs> he's he's going to plant a Sarlacc in G, at G7. <laughs> and it's going to swallow them all. <laughs> I did enjoy the photo of them all. I did enjoy well, the photo of them all on the beach there. Like... We, Look how good for the environment we are. <laughs> we've, reached, <laughs> we've reached our illogical conclusion. Uh, great the, question. Uh, great question. Thank you. That was a yeah. great question, yeah. Not uh, not got very much to do with natural history, but possibly... Uh, uh, technically it does. Technically it does. It has influences in... in well, it, it, it's been influenced by uh, anthropology, um, paleontology. Uh, it, it's inspired the little kids to go out and get interested in the natural world. Yeah, yeah, planting sarlaccs. <laughs> You're wrong, Gareth. You're wrong. <laughs> anyway, 
we'll move on. Yeah. Uh, because that unfortunately brings us to the end of this week's episode. So a big thank you for joining us um, and uh, putting up with our increasingly more probably getting us all carted away in a black helicopter ramblings there in the end. Uh, but uh, remember, uh, you can get in touch with us uh, either by email, like uh, those lovely people did, uh, at thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com. We are always on Twitter and on Facebook uh, at the Natural History Cupboard podcast. And our Twitter handle is at NH Cupboard. So we'll uh, always be looking out for bits and pieces there. Uh, and if you've liked what you've heard, uh, remember to leave us a review, subscribe and all that good stuff as well. Uh, so a big thank you to my co-hosts, Aaron. Don't go to Aaron first. <laughs> we'll come back to you in a second. So a big thank you to you, Drew. You're welcome. That's okay. Composed. A big thank you to you, Aaron. We'll let you work <laughs> no. up down there in the corner. No worries. Um, and of course, a big thank you uh, to you guys at home for listening and putting up with this insanity. Uh, and we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Dracaris. <laughs> oh, God. Kinda mutant and mayor.